I just uh, came back to Guy House after attending with some friends a ceremony, in fact the beginnings of a ceremony for a, a mutual a friend of ours who uh, died 49 days ago today. And 49 days is the, the days and uh, or the period in some of the uh, Buddhist traditions, particularly the Tibetan tradition in which it's believed or understood that the uh, that the being uh, takes rebirth, comes into a new life. And so taking some time with people who cared for him to extend a sense of well-wishing and uh, supportive uh, thoughts and invoking the support of all the, the great beings of the universe. And it's a kind of an interesting thing to imagine that someone who's died 49 days ago today in a tragic accident, totally unexpected, young, well, young, <laughs> my age, young man, <laughs> um, full of promise, is gone. And, and yet maybe something of the essence and heart of this being is uh, today come back kind of interesting to contemplate that and think, hmm, could that be so? How would that be? Would it work? It's like a little bit like, hmm. I mean, it's not so much a moment of sadness, but actually of curiosity and could even be celebration, I think. Let the goodness that was in that person's life bring them into a wholesome condition, a wholesome or a fortunate rebirth we talk about. And yet it's sort of in the realm of something we don't really know. I don't really know. I don't know if that's what's happening. I have no idea. But if it has, if it is, then clearly I know what my wish for my friend is in this moment. and That his condition be as beneficial and auspicious as may be. And it's a, a kind of an interesting thing to take place, you know, it's a little, little house and... Uh, Devon countryside in the middle of a, a culture and a country in which we're very much oriented to a different way of looking at things. We tend to sort of operate on the basis of knowledge, on the basis of information, hard facts that we can verify and prove and kind of organise ourselves and each other around. And this kind of primary orientation that we have is towards knowledge, towards sort of information, and the world that we live in is, uh, we could say, a knowledge-based society. We talk about the uh, information age. It's like this is the time in human civilization where we've got particularly good at having lots of information. We can see that much of the education, or what is called education, is the accumulation of information, the storage and the organization of knowledge, of facts, of information, material. And... Underlying all of that is a belief, a view, a perspective that's quite prevalent, I would say, pervasive, that power and meaning in life is derived through knowledge, through having information, through conceptual models and images of the way things are that enable us to control, to manipulate, to move through or with experiences, situations. And yet, perhaps we can also recognize that there's something kind of limited in this realm of 
knowledge of information. As uh, someone who I think is someone famous, and I just can't remember who they were, and, or if they said it exactly like this, but as someone said, and if they didn't, they should have said it something like this, because I like this way. He said, what is the use of knowing how to put a man on the moon if we don't know how to get on with our neighbours? It's kind of an interesting reflection, given that the technology that, or the, the, the sort of the drive that allows a man to be put on the moon or a woman, is the same drive that ends up creating sophisticated things for destroying one's neighbours, because we don't get on with them. So we can see that there's a problem here. Perhaps this world of knowledge isn't as successful as we might wish it to be or as many would have us believe that it is. And in the context of spiritual practice, a spiritual journey, we could say, as in many dimensions in this particular realm, it really runs counter to that of the world. It's, it's at a cross-current, we could say, to the social values and the position of society. Because from a spiritual perspective, true power and true meaning is not derived from knowledge and information, but actually from recognizing that which is unknown and unknowable. And we might hear this and think, hmm, sounds interesting, doesn't make a lot of sense, and uh, maybe not, but uh, nonetheless it's so. In our use and reliance on information, knowledge and the technology that it's given rise to, I think for many of us there can be a sense of being very separate, removed from the natural world. Kind of the world of human constructed technology and civilization sometimes feels remote from the nature. And yet the natural world, if we look at it, if we reflect upon it, if we allow ourselves to be touched by it, it is in fact beyond the grasp of our mind. And it itself manages to function and unfold without the particular kind of knowledge and information that we seem to demand and rely upon. There's something about the natural world, if we really let in how big it is. You know, it's kind of funny, it's quite a small word, isn't it? Big. But, you know, when you really think, as uh, someone, again, probably famous and maybe quite wise, but I don't remember who said, you know, it's not just big out there, like the universe, it's really big. You know, which is another quite ordinary word, really big. And it's like, well, well so we could say it's really, really, really big. It doesn't really matter how many, you know, you could put some really big words on it, like, you know, extremely, inconceivably, unbelievably big. But in the end, the little one works just as well. It's, it's big. And there's something about it you may have experienced for yourself, how maybe if one goes out at night on a clear evening, looks up at the stars, and just seeing the vast array of little pinpoints and the incredibly denser and thicker inky blackness in which they're sparkling. 
and just take a moment to contemplate that it's just so big. But really, when we, what we're saying by that, it's like it's bigger than our mind can stretch to get around the fact that traveling at the speed of light, which is, as you know, quite fast, it takes hundreds and thousands in some cases millions and even billions of years for the light from those stars to get to us. And some of them have perished, gone, disappeared from existence long ago. But the light traveling for a billion years at that incredibly fast speed is still coming on its way from all those years ago. And it's like we can't wrap the mind that seeks to know and model and information, we can't get it around that. There's like there's something about just, huh, we may feel as yourself just opened by it, opened by it, the natural world. And we see that, you know, science attempts to describe how it happened, you know, there was nothing and then suddenly bang, there was something and that something keeps getting bigger but at some point it'll start getting smaller. Okay, sounds like a good idea. Or, you know, of course there might be another model that said somebody was sitting there saying now there's nothing and bang, something happened, it's getting bigger. And that theory doesn't seem, or maybe it's staying the same. You know, those explanations, whether they're spiritual, religious or scientific, they don't really do it, do they? Not for me. They don't really make me think, oh yeah, oh, that, oh, that's, how, oh, that's how it happened. Great. There was nothing and it just suddenly turned into something really big. Obvious, really. But we kind of buy into it as a way of not having to face the mystery, the unknownness, the unknowableness of this. And so we, we kind of relate to life from a certain familiarity, to experience from a certain knownness. It kind of keeps it safe and well packaged for us. But occasionally we might have an experience that just kind of shakes that a little bit. There's a, a beautiful reflection from Lao Tzu who once observed, he said, I awoke from dreaming of being a butterfly. And then I wondered, am I a human being who has just dreamed of being a butterfly? Or am I a butterfly dreaming of being a human being? How would one know? I'm not suggesting you're already butterflies. Although, it's certainly quite possible. But it's like if we just step a little bit out of the habitual and the familiar frameworks, what happens is it opens up a sense of possibility. Rather than saying, I am a butterfly, hmm, okay, well, maybe I don't need to bother with this meditation anyway. If I'm a butterfly, I'm also go out and you know, have a cup of tea. I mean, that's not really the point of it. It's more like, oh, maybe I don't quite know. If I can inhabit this mind-created dream, and it feels real when I'm in it, and then I step out of it and say, oh, that was just a fantasy or a dream or an imagination. And now this is what's real. But when I was in that one, it seemed quite real too. Now this one seems real. Maybe there's something true and something not true about both of them. And we might find ourselves thinking like that. 
And it's not necessary to try and figure it out, but more to just leave open some space, some sense of possibility. Because that's what happens when we start to move away from the realm of knowledge. We come into the realm of possibility. Knowledge, information, has the promise of, as I said, of power, of being able to manipulate and control. If we know things, we can use them, we can fix them, we can organize them. And with that, the promise or the the hope of security, the sense that we can kind of organize things in such a way as that we will not be exposed to that which is difficult. We will not be separated from that which we love or appreciate. It seems like we could use the knowledge of our life and this world in order to, to organize it. That, that's what it's about, figuring it out so that we can get and keep what we want, get rid of and avoid what we don't want. And if we can do that, we'd imagine, we might think, that we'd be happy. That's kind of how we use information a lot of the time. But curiously enough, the more information we seem to have, do we find ourselves more secure, more safe, more happy? Has 24-hour news broadcasting actually made people feel more relaxed? No, it's really obvious, isn't it? People are actually more anxious. People are actually more afraid in this day and age because there's the ability to tune in any time of the day or night to stories about all the things that are going horribly and tragically wrong. Because that's the way the culture orients. It's towards fear. And so what it's interested in is the things that evoke fear. Now, it could be that a culture might be oriented towards joy and it would have news reports about all the good things that happened today. But that's not what we get. Because the fear is already inherent in the seeking for the information. So the information doesn't resolve it. It simply becomes another way in which we amplify the fear. It's like I'm afraid of life, so let me figure it out so I can be safe. But everything I find out about it tells me that, oh God, it's not that safe. So I want to know more how to make it safe. But if I really find out all about this life, it turns out that I find out it, it's not safe. It isn't. In the sense of the place of that fearful, I don't want to experience anything difficult. Because we do. All of us, each of us, you, me, everyone here and anywhere else, we experience the difficult. And there can be the sense of anxiety, this fear about what's going to happen, what's going to come. Because we've had experience of the difficult, we start to anticipate it coming again before it's happened. Sitting in meditation, knee hurts. Actually, knee isn't that bad. But the thought, what if it keeps going for the whole sitting? I can't bear it. What if it keeps going for the next sitting and all day and I, I couldn't possibly stand it, I'd better leave. Or we start imagining you know, the ambulance pulling up at Gaia House and us being wheeled out with our leg sort of you know, in traction. And we can't bear the possibility. But that's not what's happening. What's happening is our fear and our projection into the future. So again, referring back to the, the natural world, it's not like that for creatures who do not live by knowledge. I'm not advocating we go into that. And we're not trying to become sort of like 
creatures because they don't have the degree of consciousness that we have. We have a greater potential than that. But there's still something to be learnt from it. There's a beautiful poem by uh, Wendell Berry, The Peace of Wild Things. He says, When despair for the world comes upon me, and I awake at night at the slightest sound, in fear for what my life and what my children's lives will be, I go down to the water where the great heron feeds, and where the wood drake rests in his beauty. I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their minds with forethought of grief. For a while I rest in the grace of the world and am free. To come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their life with forethought of grief, with the imagined, projected, anticipated sorrow, loss or pain. That hasn't happened. That may not happen. There's something of what we do here that relates to that and that we're learning to be here. So it's to start to free ourselves from the pressure of forethought of grief, the imagination and anticipation of that which might or might not happen. Because we can't deal with it here and now. Because it hasn't happened, there's nothing to deal with. So we just get entangled in it. When it happens, if it happens, it may not, but if it does, we can respond to it. That's different. Not suggesting difficult things won't happen. But once they've happened, we can deal with them. But in order to understand how this happens, we really need to look at our relationship to knowledge, to information, to the way we conceive and construct the world. We live, or we imagine at least, that we live in a world of time. In how we relate to life, the sense of our past and the sense of our future seem to be the vast and weighty elements. We look at all those things that have gone before. We look to all those things that will come. And somehow they seem to occupy 99% of our activity of our mind, if you look and see, until we start attending to it, until we start cultivating a quality of presence and a capacity to connect. Most of the time we live there and it seems so real. It seems like that's the truth of my life. And that this, what we call the present, is just some kind of, like this slippery little spot where I'm sliding from the past into the future. But of no real significance. And what's important is the past, and I'm looking back, and the future, and I'm looking forward. And that's what's going on, we think. <coughs> but what happens when we live our life based in time? This idea, this construct. Because it is a construct. It doesn't have any objective, sort of established reality beyond our agreed shared perception and operation within it. 
it has its value and its use, of course. If we didn't, ha- I'm not knocking time. If we didn't have time, we wouldn't know when to come and hear the Dharma talk. I wouldn't know when to come and give the Dharma talk. We'd be all wandering in and out, looking a bit confused. Of course, sometimes that happens even when you do have time. Have you noticed? Sometimes the bell doesn't ring. You think, well, we all have clocks. How did the bell not go? Someone probably forgot. I expect they didn't intend to, but it's kind of like we have an organisation, so we use time to coordinate together. But it's not like 3.45 is a better time than 3.48. It's just different. It's, it's, it's like it's, there's not that much to it, really. Sometimes the bell doesn't go, and we think, oh, what happened? Oh, we're happily walking back and forth, thinking, this is a long walking period. <laughs> Gosh, time's standing still, it seems. Or was it the other way around? Time is dragging. Anyway, and then it turns out, no, actually, it's not. Sometimes, of course, we're sitting in the meditation and it seems like, I've been here for hours. Surely this has been more than 45 minutes. You know, one hour, two hours. They've fallen asleep at the front. They're, or, or they're in some great meditation that they haven't told us about yet, having a good time and don't care about us anymore. We've been abandoned to our fate, our aching knees and our reactive minds and it's like what, according to a clock, was 40 minutes, was, was an eternity in an inner experience. Whereas, however, if we uh, manage to space out, which is you know, a useful strategy if things are dragging, we space out and then suddenly 15 minutes goes past, it's gone. There's nothing left of it. It's just disappeared. And like, we just lost 15 minutes of our life because we didn't live it. We weren't there, were we? happens to me, I'm sure it happens to you. I mean, you tell me it does, so I'm reasonably confident in that. And when we relate to it like that, well, so what is that thing called time? That we can lose a bit of it? You know, what is that? It slips through our fingers when we try and actually take hold of it. And when we live our life in this concept, in this construct, it creates this struggle as I mentioned this morning, I think it was this morning, was it? About the concept of duration, time, duration. It's like duration, it's like extension in time. And how that's related to the word endure. You know, it's like, oh, I've got to put up with more of this and more of this. And sometimes in practice we talk, it's spoken of, of patient endurance, sort of patiently enduring experience, which I think it has a certain value, but it sounds a little bit like we're sort of kind of just waiting till it's over that's not being alive and yet it comes so much out of this way we relate to experience rather than as just this, just now but from a framework that's oriented towards time so when something lovely arises in our meditation something sweet, delightful moment of rippling, tingling sensation through the torso it's like, ah rather than just, ah it's like Finally, I, I've been waiting a long time for this. Whew, got here. How long will it last? What do I do to keep it? And then we start to relate to its future. Of course, the moment we start to do that, it stops happening because we're thinking about it and in our heads. But it's that factor of time that we keep bringing into the experience that means we're trying to hold on to it. And in the holding on to experience, we lose it because experience can't be held. Holding is something that operates in time. Experience just slips through our fingers. 
And likewise with difficult experiences, as I, I said, with the uh, you know the sore knee and the, it's not so much that the knee hurts that's bad; it's the projecting it into the future, because we start to relate to its imagined future. We start to resist it. We start to work out strategies to fix it or get rid of it, rather than actually meeting the immediacy of it. And that projecting of the difficulty into the future is much of the suffering associated with difficult experience. It was like this, or it is like this, and it will continue to be so. We're feeling kind of miserable one morning, a little bit down. It happens to all of us at times, I'm sure. And we kind of think, oh God, it's tough. Kind of feeling a bit low, I guess a bit depressed. Yeah, makes sense really. Mum and Dad were depressed now and then, you know. Their grandparents, my grandparents, they, they were kind of miserable. They had a hard life. I guess my kids would be depressed too, you know. And their kids, actually the whole world looks pretty miserable from where I'm sitting right now. And somehow we've painted everything with what was just a moment of kind of feeling a bit low. And then we hear the bell for breakfast. Ding! And we think, ah, oh, great, porridge again. Yeah! And the world is completely different. And we believe this whole thing. So many times, so many times, we believe it as if we really know that this is how it is. What kind of knowledge is that? That we just keep turning over for something new, moment after moment, day after day. There is only now. That which we call the past is an image, a picture painted in your mind. It is not the past. And that image is not what happened. Although it may have a relationship to it, it's not to negate the significance and the impact of past. We are touched in ways that are painful, that affect us. We are also touched in ways that are nourishing and uplift us through what has gone by and the actions of our life that support the development of the wholesome or the unskillful qualities of heart and mind. These have an effect. But that is not the image in the mind that says, past, I was like this, or I did that. That's an image. Past is gone. Gone. Can't go back there. It isn't there somewhere to go back to. We might think we'd like to go back there and sort it out, but it's not there. It's not like it's in a cupboard somewhere where you could get it out like some old clothes and, you know, darn up the holes and give it a fresh iron and launder and... No, it's gone. And the future? It's not there. It's not sitting there waiting for you to turn up and collect it. Tomorrow's experience is not existing somewhere in a little cupboard marked is it the 24th of October. It's not there. Tomorrow it doesn't exist. There's only now. And you know, that's actually really quite a relief. Because when we start to see that we just have this, then actually we can live this. We don't have to be engaging with it from a place that's not actually true. Because so much of our engagement with experience and with life seems to be caught up and bound up in another concept, another attempt 
to construct a model for how things are, a form of knowing that's related to the idea of progress, of getting something, of becoming someone. And to see it's dependent upon time and on measuring and comparing. We say, at that time, I was like this, or somebody else was like that, or the world was this way. And now at this time, it's different. Like when I was little, I was only that tall, and now I'm older, I'm this tall. Kind of simple one. Not so problematic, that particular illustration. But we do this thing whereby we're measuring ourself and that movement over time of different measurements leads to constructing images, a sense of me, which we're hoping to construct in a favourable light and feel good about, but often, unfortunately, we find ourselves ending up constructing in an unfavourable light and feeling bad about. And like pretty much everything that happens here, it happens in meditation, it happens in our lives. So we're sitting in meditation and... Uh, you know, we'd really like to develop some calm and concentration, be filled with loving kindness and friendly warmth, compassion, to be bright and clear, insightful, understanding the nature of things. Of course we would. That's why we're here. And, you know, bravo, of course, that's why we're not come. But we sit there looking at it thinking, well, is this more than I had yesterday? Well, sometimes maybe, but the other times it feels like it's less. I'm all confused now. I thought I understood why I, what I was doing yesterday after the talk and really I understood it and, and today guy, he tells me I don't know what I'm doing at all and it's right it's like we get confused we don't know where we are or one sitting we're really calm we think ah got it I'm doing well now I'm good yeah I'm a good meditator mm. next sitting we're all busy and wondering where our nice calm has gone and then we're oh no I've lost it I'm hopeless I'm a bad meditator am I talking too quickly I'm asking you a question. <laughs> Maybe, okay. Sure, it's fine to say I'm talking too quickly. Or maybe we don't have to say too quickly as in sort of a judgment, isn't it? It's more like talking very quickly or quite quickly and maybe more quickly than the optimal level for understanding. <laughs> How's that? Okay, that's good. It's uh, sometimes good just to stop and notice, huh? I'm excited, I'm enjoying this. <laughs> but the point is actually that you understand it, so uh, best I slow down. So see how we create these positions of positiveness. I'm doing really well in my meditation. I had two calm sittings in a row. And then I feel good about myself. But see how it's a measurement, how much concentration for how long, and I've got a certain idea in my mind of what's a good amount in order to qualify as success. Oh, another time it's like, oh, I barely managed to notice two breaths together in the whole sitting. I'm a failure, I'm hopeless, I can't do it. And we feel like, again, see, it's a measurement. How many breaths over how much time? We try and make some information out of it that we make a conclusion about me that says... Rubbish. Of course, someone else hearing this thinks, two breaths together? Two whole breaths? You know, I barely got from the beginning of the in-breath to halfway down it. And that felt pretty good, given what was going on this morning. So it's kind of relative. It's kind of relative. And yet that whole process is unsustainable. 
Because we can't come to any picture, any fixed place. We just keep going through the same old process. Better, worse, good, bad. Like me, don't like me. Think I'm doing great and everybody loves me. Think I'm a mess and everybody knows. All that just goes on and on and on. And yet, (laughs) kind of tragically and kind of ironically, humorously, that's actually not what's going on. That's some kind of story we're telling about it in the attempt to locate a clear picture we can hold. But what's going on is something quite different. And if we want to know how we're doing here, oh, there's a story I think illustrates it rather well, one of my favourite stories, so I'm sure some of you have heard it before. But on a retreat not that different than this, a number of years ago in California, um, one of the senior teachers of our lineage, Jack Cornfield, was teaching with some other teachers and coming into the staff room in the evening, he uh, was asked by one of the staff whose friend was on the retreat, he said, Jack, could you tell me how my friend's doing? And Jack said, oh, your friend got his name. He's doing very well. Staff person was very happy to hear. He said, oh, what about the other person? I know them. How are they? Oh, they're doing very well. And a third, another staff person in the room hearing the conversation says, Jack, Jack, my... My friend's on the retreat too. How are they? They're doing very well, says Jack. And the first staff member, he looked up at Jack and said, So Jack, just what exactly do you mean by doing very well? And Jack said, Huh, they're still here. (laughs) And so if you're wondering how you're doing, still here. And that sense of being here, not just physically in the room, though that's part of it, but like coming along, coming to the sittings, doing the walking, being present, really doing what you can to be here. Not trying to measure what the result of that is, because you can't. But being here, really showing up wholeheartedly, so far as you're able to do so. That's what's asked of us. And to see, to look, to notice how this whole sense of time and progress or regress, we use it to create the sense of me, sense of who I am. And the whole way that we get involved with past and future is because we can extract from it, because it's an image, because it's a picture. It's not a real alive thing. It's an image. And it's fixed. Because it's an image, we can make it solid. Life is alive. It's the definition of alive is it keeps shifting and moving. It's fluid. But a picture, an image, is just fixed. So the image from the past or the image of the future that we relate to gives us a sense of a, a clear sense of me. It's like we can feel the sense or the sense of identity takes hold of it and establishes establishes a sense of security through the fixity of the image, through the sense of knowing this is who I was. This is who I will be. And the sense of me is just somehow happily suspended between those two kind of stakes that we've driven into the ground and said, that's how it is. And that's me in between that, who I was and who I will be. And it's all relatively clear. When we meet someone on the street, they know who I am because they knew who I was. They don't come and say, who are you? They know us. 
And we know ourselves from history. But there's more to know than that. That's a piece of it, sure. It has its place and its value. And it's again, it's useful. It's not to knock all of that. It can be really embarrassing if one didn't actually recognise all the people one knows. Just come up and saying, who are you? Wouldn't work, would it? But in some sense, if we come into the present moment, what we encounter in our experience is something that's fluid, that's not fixed, that's undefinable. It's kind of like it keeps just rolling on from one sound, sensation, thought, feeling, in the morning feeling great, in the afternoon feeling drowsy, in the evening feeling restless, occasionally in between being irritable or excited or delighted or bored. Just life pours through. And there's nothing in that that we can take and say, me, because it's just... So can we allow ourselves to be more fluid? Can we begin to sense into, can we begin to feel the truth of what that is? Can we see how strongly and how at times desperately our mind wants to know because it's a little bit scared when things are fluid and movement is happening and it's unpredictable. And a number of you spoke today in uh, reflecting on your experience about that sense of how we want to know what's going on. Or sometimes we, we kind of want to have a, have a picture for it, but actually what we need to do is just experience it without always having to have the model. There's something really scary it seems it appears there's something scary about not knowing about the unknown that evokes a sense of fear for many for most of us and it's understandable because it seems like when we don't know what's coming we could be vulnerable we might be in danger so there's a need for some awareness some attentiveness in such a situation but to see how we hold on to it, how we depend upon it. Like there's this, um, a large part of how we orient towards another human being, how we form a sense of relationship to them, unconsciously mostly, is to do with whether they're a male or a female human being. And that's just kind of wired into us. And it's been recognised and with some you know, observation that most people are really uncomfortable relating to someone if they can't tell whether this person they're relating to is a, a male or a female. With babies, of course, it's a bit of a problem, so we dress them up in pink and blue and sort that one out. Or we, we give some pretty clear indicators. But if not, first thing that gets asked, possibly before the name, is, is it a or a? Because we want to know. Imagine if someone's walking towards you and you can't tell. Mind goes into overdrive trying to figure it out. It's like, you know, how do they walk? What's their body look like? How's their hair? What's the shape of the face? But what's it like just not to know? Because so many of our responses, our ability to position ourselves, are dependent upon that particular piece of information. And that's just an example of how often we're so much relying on pieces of information in order to kind of find a place to land. But that sense of landing 
is profoundly limiting. We need a certain amount of a framework, of a basis of trust, but there's something about it that's profoundly limiting. Just um, three years ago, I was uh, teaching or about to teach a retreat in Australia in um, a monastery, the Wat Buddha Dhamma, in the uh, Darug National Park in New South Wales, Australia. And I'd arrived the first time to this place. It was a remote little sort of uh, and quite rustic uh, situation. And I'd been delivered to this little kuti, this little hut in the woods, in the bush, that was some, I don't know, half a mile from the, the, the main retreat centre where I was going to be staying. And in the afternoon, as I often do when I'm jet-lagged, having just flown to Australia from here, um, I went for a run, because it kind of just helps me ground, and I went running up around the hills, and uh, I don't know, 30 minutes or so out from, um, not far before I would have probably thought I need to turn back, come back, I was running out there, just in my you know shorts and singlet, or vest, I think you call it here, um, thing with no sleeves, um, where I come from, a vest has got buttons and goes under your suit jacket, but uh, that's something else. Um, anyway, so I was running, and uh, I just saw in quite dense fo- bush, there was this ridge, and above it the sun. And I thought, oh, I'll get a view, I'll be able to see where I am, because I, I wanted to see. I wanted to. Okay, So I, um, I just left the path that I was running on, and I started climbing up there. Well, I'm quite experienced in the wilderness and sort of the bush, not in Australia particularly, but certainly in New Zealand and elsewhere. And uh, I was quite happy and relaxed just walking up this hill, following the line of the, the hill up into the top. And I walked for about, I guess, 10 or 15 minutes up this, um, up this hill. I got to the, pretty much the top of the hill and looked over, and actually it was still surrounded by trees, couldn't see that much. So I thought, oh, yeah, OK. Headed back down to the path. Walked down, down the path, down to the path, and down to the path, and down to the path. And after about 15 or 20 minutes, I realised... I think I missed the path. It's not there. Oh, okay, it's no problem. Oh, whiz back up the hill. <laughs> I think I was feeling quite fit at the time, fortunately. Whiz back up the hill, up to about the same place, and it's down there. I know, I just remember. Because I paid really careful attention when I was going up there as to where I was going and where the sun was and what the orientation of the hill was. So that I'd find my way back down. I kind of did it without thinking, because that's sort of what one does. And so I went back up, came back down, another 10, 15, 20 minutes, not Maybe I went further higher than I... Maybe it was going up for longer than I thought. So I kept going down. The path must be just a bit further down. Down, 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 another five or ten minutes. Certainly it wasn't that far down. Must have missed it. I'll go back up. I went up and down four, five, six times. It was getting dark. And I started to realise I can't find the path. It took a little while. The path, I can't find it. That's really strange. It was getting dark. It was starting to cool was February, so I wasn't in danger of sort of getting too cold, but I was thinking, gosh, I don't know, you know, what am I going to do? And I thought, well, okay, I only got my running clothes on, but I'll just get some, I started pulling up some leaves and some uh, sort of uh, fronds of trees and things and just making something I could lie on for the night, thinking, gosh, I'll find the path in the morning, no problem, it's just down there, I know, because I really paid careful attention when I climbed up a hill. Um... And I was a little bit scratched, a little bit sore, and I thought, it's getting dark, I'd better stop doing That's why, because it was dark and it was really quite steep. I'm going to hurt myself if I keep going up and down this hill, so I'll stop. And I started to just, I was just sitting down. I'm just contemplating my situation, thinking, gosh, 
hmm, they probably haven't noticed that I'm not there because they just left me in the cootie and retreat doesn't start t- till tomorrow. So, okay, well, that's all right, I'll get down in the morning. And I was thinking a bit more and I thought, gosh, you know, at least I know where the path is. It would be really bad if I didn't know where the path was, but it's just down there. And then I suddenly thought, but Yanai, you've been down there five or six times or more. It's not down there. It's not where you think it is. And in that moment, what burst into my consciousness with this immense wave of energy, this like existential survival terror, fear of annihilation, of you don't know where the path is. You don't know. You're lost. You've got no idea. You might have turned 180 degrees around and be facing into the wrong valley and you're going to die up here on this hill. Nobody's going to come and look for you. When they do, they've got no idea where you are. You didn't tell anybody. They won't even miss you till the opening talk is due to begin. They'll be sitting there looking, so where is the teacher? And it was like, it was just like, it just took a moment. But this visceral fear just burst through me and it was like shocking to the core. Shocking to the core. But then after it went through me, it was like, ah, ah, yeah, I don't actually have a clue. I could have gone completely the wrong way. But now that I'm clear that I don't know where it is, I don't have to keep looking where I think it is, which it's not. And until that moment, I could not look anywhere else. So I said, okay, well, I know it's down there. I'm still convinced, actually, it's down there. But maybe I should try another approach. And just then the sun came out, and I broke a, a stick off a tree so I could sort of have a bit of stability going down the sleep slope. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll go about 25 degrees round clockwise, and I'll check that route. I'll just go down there. If I don't find it, I'll come up another 25 degrees. So I went 25 degrees round clockwise, headed down the slope, I was quite sure I'm not going to find the path down here because it's over there. What do you think? Ten minutes down the hill, bang, there's the path. Amazing, huh? I was lost. I was possibly going to sleep out the night and there are snakes and scorpions out there. It was a little bit scary. I was possibly stuck because I could not admit that I didn't know where the path was. I was not imprisoned by the bush, by the night, or by the circumstances, but my need to hold on to my certainty of knowing where the path was. That's what had me trapped. And when I went through the, the fear of not knowing, it was obvious. So I don't know, so I'll try and see. And I... In the... Uh, rather dark but moonlit conditions, jogged back on the path to the cootie and had a shower, went to bed. Thought, hmm, how embarrassing. <laughs> I spent a lot of time talking to people about not knowing. But really useful, really powerful. Because when we see that we don't know and that the fear that comes with it is actually just a wave because afterwards what we're left with is a sense of possibility. That wave opens us up, it clears us out. And that's scary in one way because there's a lot of security in all the structures we hold to of our certainties. But when we're cleared out from them, what we're left with is something remarkable, something open, something spacious and precious. 
It's something we can learn to trust in. Something that is a true sense of of power and of meaning in life. And it's really to do with a, a deeper heart's knowing that isn't to do with knowledge, that's not about information, that is not based on the past, but that's based in an unconditional and uncompromising willingness to open into the truth of where we find ourselves. Even though it may be scary, it may be difficult. And to trust that journey, to trust that journey. For all that we might wish it to be so, the intellect is not a trustworthy thing on which to base our lives. If it was, then our culture's adulation and subjugation to it would produce startlingly different results than the tragedy that it does produce. So we know that. But it's another whole step to take that courage in our hands. Trust, to just see what's it like to enter into even one moment. Not knowing, not needing to be secure, but just trusting in life. To be able to hold that fearful place in our hearts that has been in the past hurt, that knows we are vulnerable and sensitive and fears having that vulnerability, that sensitivity impacted. Of course, we need to respect that. We need to be really gentle with that. But to hold it with, with love, with tenderness, with kindness, rather than somehow trying to force ourselves to not exp- or prevent ourselves from experiencing that place, through establishing a sense of certainty or solidity or fixity in life, which only reinforces the pain, to actually be able to hold, to meet, to be touched by and to touch those places of tenderness or vulnerability and to see that there's something that's true about them. Not that they define who we are, because they don't, no matter how painful, but that they speak to us of something sensitive, something alive, something precious and vital and beautiful that we only know with that deeper aspect or dimension of our being that we don't know through the mind of thinking about of planning of past of future of concepts and in this in this unknowing in this unknowing, like this releasing of the sense of limitation, of bondage, of, of fear-driven existence that revolves around the knowing, there's a natural space and spaciousness. There's a natural ease and well-being that isn't dependent upon an absence of difficult things, but that is much more arising out of an attunement, a sense of attunement to life. An attunement to truth. A 
This is really the invitation of our practice to discover this. To know this. Not as knowledge or interesting ideas or great concepts that we might read or hear about, but in the heart of hearts, in the beingness of being. That is. This, each of us, can know. This is available to you. So may each of us here and all beings come to that true knowing of the heart. To abide in the truth of life that is not bound by time or space. for our own welfare and freedom and for the well-being and the freedom of all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.